0: I want to tell you about probably the most special member of our last church in a lot of ways. Uh, His name was Naaman, and Naaman was homeless. Uh, We'd start 10 years ago. We started a church in downtown Greenville, and Naaman would always sit right outside the coffee and ice cream shop where we met on Sundays, and uh, he would always buy little bags of tobacco and paper roll his own little cigarettes. And he would sit there, and he was so nice And eventually, one day, somebody invited Naaman to come into our church and worship with us, and he stuck. And, uh, man, I never will, like, I, I love Naaman so much. Like, if I took the ten, uh, ten favorite photos of our life in Greenville, uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, Naaman cooking one night on the grill at baptism. We were having baptism. We'd grill out, and, and there he was cooking with his ponytail, and Naaman had about five teeth in his mouth. And he was just the sweetest guy. He would come in on Sundays, and he would always sit in the corner uh, but he began to build relationships with people, and everybody began to, if you knew him, you, you began to just love this guy. So then he started coming to our small group that met at our house, and you had, like, white-collar people. And then we had, our, our church was a church for artists in Greenville, and so there were all these artists. And here was this homeless guy, and, uh, and some nights if the weather was bad, uh, people would give him a ride home. He lived under a bridge Uh, in downtown. And so uh, the person who had always, the couple who had given a ride home would say, you know, it was really bizarre tonight in a thunderstorm, taking him and dropping him off right on church street, knowing he was going to walk up and stay under the bridge. And he was just such a special part of our family. Like I said, he would cook at events. He would always arrive early and leave last. Often we would give him a ride. He would pray. I loved hearing him pray uh, because he didn't live with like the need to impress anybody. So when he prayed, he just talked to Jesus and it was really powerful to hear him do that. He would encourage Like I would be struggling with something and it's so easy when you have a house and you're talking with someone who doesn't to think you're better than a little bit. And man, he would encourage me and God would use him to speak wisdom into my life. And uh, he would help, he would help us. We moved, we bought a house, we moved from an apartment to our house and he helped us move. And two statements from that day will stand out in my mind forever. First of all, he's like, we're putting stuff in our garage that we're not even using. It's just going in the garage for storage. And he goes, man, JD, you got a lot of stuff. I was like, whew, that feels bad. Like, that really, that really hurt. He wasn't trying to hurt, but I was like, I need to downsize. I needed Marie Kondo uh, about seven years ago. But then the best thing that I never, this is the, this is the name and quote of all time. We were moving in, and, and, uh, and he says, uh, at the end, we get everything moving in, and he goes, Natalie, I'm not going to lie to you. You, you just moved into the worst neighborhood in Greenville. And, uh, and true to form, like it was, two streets over was the where the police had to respond most uh, in our entire city. And Natalie goes, well, Naaman... That would have been really useful information one month ago. And I, and I thought to myself, I thought, man, when the homeless people are telling you, you live in a rough spot, you know, you live in a rough spot. Like, but that was the deal. Like that was like Naaman was family and he could say anything and he became so special to us and it didn't matter his story, our story. And from Naaman, I, I learned deep in my soul that everybody matters to God. Because for months, people would walk past this guy on Sunday morning. And finally, one Sunday morning, somebody said, you know, we probably ought to invite him in. Everybody had assumed he wouldn't come in. And everyone was nice to him, spoke to him. But nobody connected the dots that maybe this guy would want to come in and worship uh, on Sunday with our church. Everybody matters to God. Everybody. Everybody matters. You matter to God. So even before we start and say anything today, you, yep, you got it. Like, if you want to take notes, here's your note right here. This is the number one note. Um, everybody matters. Everyone matters. A lot of my Christian journey, I felt like I didn't matter to God. Like, I was a cog in, in God's sort of kingdom machine, and I needed to do my job and couldn't afford to break down because if I broke down, then things might fall apart. But I didn't really matter. Like, I would, I would go to church for a lot of my before I was in ministry, like my youth and my young adulthood and thought I didn't matter to what was going on in the church. Like, I just thought if I'm there, great. If I'm not, they're not going to miss me. It doesn't matter. I don't matter. But the truth is, man, everybody matters to God. And before we even start really diving into the scripture today, just let me tell you, if there's any, if the voice of Satan has a tendency to whisper into your ear and say, you don't matter to God, or you don't matter to this church— Don't listen to that. Tell that voice to be quiet. Everyone matters. Everybody matters. We're all part, not of a machine. We're part of the body of Christ. And everybody has a a role to play. Maturing as a disciple, we're just saying the same things over and over this summer. I figure like people are away for two and three weeks. If we just say the same thing over and over for eight weeks, hopefully people will hear it at least once or twice and we'll be good. Like maturing as a disciple is not... Learning more Bible verses, it's not going to church more, it's not uh being a whole, it's not becoming more holy. Maturing as a disciple, maturing as a follower of Jesus is maturing in Christ love, like cross love, the ability to lay down your life, saying, Oh, Justin matters. So, because Justin matters, whatever he needs, if I have it, at, if I can do it, I'm doing it for him because he matters to God. So, I'm maturing in love, not if I come to church, but. How much I can lay down my life for the other people in the room. And the same is true of you. If you want to measure, am I closer to Jesus today than I was 12 months ago, look at how you love people around you, especially people you don't know. That's maturing as a disciple, and everybody matters. So if you got a Bible, turn to Luke 15. I'm just going to sit down if that's okay for you. I'm less fidgety, and my blood pressure stays down if I just sit down. So... If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 15. If you've got a paper Bible, large print, 969, small print, 510. Here we go. Okay, uh, 510, 969, Luke 15, here we go. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them." So you got two groups of people sitting there. You got the tax collectors and sinners. A lot of times, it's talking about like sex sinners. These are these are rough. Like these could be rough people. I like to envision like Jesus at parties, and I think of like IRS agents there, and like. Semi, you know, Israelite terrorists there, and uh, and then prostitutes there, and these are the people that hung around Jesus all the time, and that seems to be who's here. And the Pharisees and the scribes, who are the religious people of the day, the ones who love to follow the rules, and they thought, man, if we can follow the rules, then we'll be close to God. Uh, so these Pharisees, they're mad. They're like, they're seeing that there's two different groups at the parties. There's the really religious people and the really morally questionable people, and uh, and they're, they're frustrated. And so they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Verse 4, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I've found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of, of God over one sinner who repents. He goes on in verse 11 to tell a longer story about a man with two sons. Uh, one is the prodigal son who asks for his inheritance, essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance? He goes off to a far off land, squanders everything. The father kind of sits on the porch night after night waiting for the son to come home eventually the son, who has run through all his money on loose living, uh, kind of comes to his senses sitting in a pigsty and says, man, I should go home to my dad. I could be a slave in my dad's house. That would be better than sitting here in this pigsty, starving to death. And so he begins to head home. Dad's sitting on the porch waiting for his son. He catches his son coming over the horizon. He begins to run, which in uh, first century Jewish culture was a total no-no. And he begins to run to his son. He sees him, embraces him, uh, calls the servant, says, throw a ring on his finger, kill the and calf. We're about to have a party for this son of mine who was dead, is now alive. The son who was lost is now found. And then there's an older brother who gets mad and says, dad, how can you spend all of this money on this son of yours? He was out squandering all your money on prostitutes. And now he comes home and you're just going to throw a party and let it all go. And the dad says, no, 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 you don't understand you've always been with me because the son had complained that he didn't get a big party and a fattened calf and a ring. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. Like your brother was dead and he's alive. And we have to celebrate this. And that's where the third story kind of wraps up. I didn't want to read it all in the interest of time. Listen, honestly, we could preach three months worth of sermons on these verses. So I'm not saying today we're talking about everything exhaustively in Luke 15, but I just want to focus on Jesus and the Pharisees around this idea that everyone matters. So in the Pharisees' system, in the religious people's system, everyone didn't matter equally. If you take notes, that's, important. that's, that's a little important to, to realize. The most religious people in the story didn't think everybody mattered equally. For them... Uh, and this is a byproduct of their religion. And as much as like, and when I say religion, I'm, I'm saying this idea that we're going to do things to work our way to God. Whereas what Christianity is offering, what Jesus offers, what the gospel offers is the idea that if we mess up even one time, we're forever separated by a perfect God. And so because we're separated, God and love comes down to us. And Jesus died on the cross to accomplish for us what we can't accomplish. So when I say that these guys were religious and they ranked people and everybody wasn't didn't matter equally, their religion did that to them. What I mean is the sense that if if some people do good things and God loves them, then some people do bad things or don't add up, and then God doesn't love them as much. And this is how these guys operated. This was like the 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 sickness in their brains and in their hearts, and so they get mad. This man's receiving sinners and eating with them, and and Pharisees were notorious for creating these us categories and these them categories, and and so they had uh, us and thems based on morality. Well, Lana is more moral than Natalie, so Lana can be on our team, but Natalie can't. We can hang around Lana. We can't hang around Natalie. Morality was one way, but they kind of drew lines. Another way was religious upbringing. Some of, Like if you grew up and you knew all the rules of the old, the old Jewish scriptures and you knew all the laws and you knew that on a Sunday you could only walk to the playground. But then once you got to the playground, you'd have to set up something that kind of made that look like that was a second home so that you could then walk over to Brewer's Fork. If you knew all the religious rules and followed them, you could be on their team. But if you didn't, if you just walked to Brewer's Fork, you couldn't be on their team. And they had all of these little, little rules, that, the sub-rules that weren't in Scripture, and God never demanded of people that they created to show that everybody didn't matter equally. Ethnicity mattered to them. If you were Jewish, you were good. If you were not Jewish, not good. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King said Sunday morning, the Sunday morning church hour is the most segregated hour in our society today. And he said that over 50 years years ago. It's still relatively true. Like I hold out hope and pray that as our church is becoming, what it becomes reflects our neighborhood. And whatever color or nationality or passport someone has, I pray that our church reflects that here. And we need to fight for that. The Pharisees didn't fight for that. They would say, oh, you you look like us. You're one of us. You can be on our team. Oh, you don't look like us. You can't be on our team. Carson got, what What was, what'd you do, like, Ancestry.com? Carson sent me his Ancestry.com uh, profile, like, what all he is. Let me just tell you, if there is a country on the map in Europe, like, Carson has some of that uh, in his DNA. It's like, man, you, he is the poster child for a borderless Europe, like, There's French, Italian, German, uh, Scottish, Irish, British, uh, some European Jewish. It's amazing how many different ethnicities. Like, the Pharisees would look at Carson and say, dude, you can't be on our team. You're biracial. You can't be here. That's what religion does. Creates these us and them uh, categories. and, and, And in their system, if you were biracial or not Jewish, then you didn't matter equally to them. Uh, handicaps. If you had any type of handicaps or physical disabilities, you couldn't, you, you couldn't be on their team. If you uh, had a rough past, that's what this is about. People with a rough past or a rough present, and they say, Jesus, how can you hang out with these guys? These are bad dudes. These are some shady women. How can you be hanging out with them and claim to be gone? Now, in this worldview, when we begin to think like this, Uh, a few things happen. One, we begin to focus first on people's flaws and mistakes. The first thing we begin to notice when everybody doesn't matter equally is why they don't matter equally. We look and we're like, oh, you're not one of me. Like, the first thing we begin to see is Oh, what what clothes are you wearing to church? Or what do you you look like? Or does it look like you have money or not? Does it look like you're religious or not? One of the volunteers, he's not in here. He's teaching kids this morning. He walked out this morning. I told the team last night. I said, if you want to wear shorts and a shirt tomorrow to church, do it. That's great. Nobody cares. And one of the guys comes out this morning in in a polo and shorts. He goes, I got to tell you, I'm so excited. I have never worn shorts to church in my life. I wasn't allowed to do that. And their pastor, Pastor Keith was like, brother, you could have been wearing shorts all along. Nobody, nobody cares. Like, listen, when, when, when we don't treat everyone equally, we begin to focus first on people's flaws, mistakes, and the ways they're different. Another thing we begin to do is we don't get close to people. Because proximity begins to create intimacy. And if I'm worried that when I get to know you, you might be so different than me that I might not be able to treat you equally, then I just don't get close to you. So you know you know, when you walk into a church where people don't treat everyone equally because nobody speaks to the new people. That's how you know. If you ever want to know, if we ever want to judge how we're doing as a church, just watch when new people walk through the door. If we can pursue them in love with no agenda, we're, we're getting it right. If we can't, we've got some Pharisee in us. Uh, in this worldview, we love to control situations, image, people. We fear and we avoid risk, especially risky relationships. And we easily write people off. When everyone isn't, when everyone doesn't matter, we easily write people off because they don't matter. They're just, if they, if they stopped coming or they won't come, then they weren't one of us anyhow. And we just say, you're out of here. I'll I'll be totally honest. Here's a moment of transparency. I can tend to do this, like not see every person. I can tend to see people, but not persons. And I need you. We need you in this church because this is a weakness of mine at times. There's times, I'll be very honest, when we say amen and we're done, that I can tend to just want to begin to tear things down and feel rushed like the day you visited three weeks ago for the first time, Rochelle, somebody had caught me right after I said amen, and I wanted to beeline it to you because you were a first time guest, and I got caught talking with somebody who's a regular part of our church, and I was so impatient with that person and wasn't listening to what was going on in that person's heart. And that wasn't fair to that person. And man, we've got to love one another, and this is a failure of mine at times. I can see people, but not persons, and Jesus sees persons. That's why we say, every one matters and so I, I need you to forgive me if there are times where I'm not seeing you as your pastor that will happen and I'm sorry and I want to get that right And the more I become like Jesus the better I'll do with that I need you to even graciously at times say hey are you hearing me are you seeing me right now you know uh, that's what Jesus sees and that's what Jesus does so Jesus doesn't rebuke these guys. He actually captures their imagination with these two stories, he captures their imagination towards God's heart and what can be. Now, in Jesus's system, the way of God, everybody matters infinitely. Everybody matters infinitely to God. These are stories of sheep and coins and a son, uh, and, and they're powerful stories. It kind of reminds me of this. Like, to the Pharisees—this is going to sound so weird on the podcast, this, these coins— To the Pharisees, some people are pennies, and some people are nickels, and some people are dimes, and some and and a very few are quarters. But a few might be quarters, right? Now, to the Pharisees, if they happen to drop a penny, life goes on. Because they were a penny anyhow. They didn't look like us, they didn't have the same value as us. If we drop one of those, life moves on. Now, nickels are a little different. To the Pharisees, a nickel might be a little more. Like if you drop a nickel, you might pick it up. If you're busy, you might not. And then dimes and then quarters. And not everybody had equal value to them. Here's how Jesus views people. These are silver dollars. These are much more rare, right? These are really precious in our house. You're like, how you got, how you got so many silver dollars, right? Uh, Natalie's grandmother's 102 years old, Gosh, she's 103, Granny Polly. If you're listening, please forgive me. Um, <laughs> Granny Polly is 100. She just turned 103. That's amazing. Mine's still pretty sharp. Every year at Christmas, she gives her grandchildren a silver dollar. Um, she's done this for years. I, they were. I, I pulled out 10 this morning because Jesus told a story about 10 coins, but there are actually there's you know dozens of them in at our house. These are precious. Because these cost a 90-something-year-old woman to do, like on fixed income, these cost her something to buy for her dozens of grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren that she has. These were costly. So if I drop one of these, you better believe I'm going looking for it. Because one, it's just more valuable. This is a dollar, and those are a penny and a nickel and a dime and a quarter. But two, it costs someone to purchase these. In Jesus's economy, we're like these because they cost him to purchase us, and they're of much greater value. And the trick is, Jesus doesn't see pennies, dimes, nickels, quarters. Jesus only sees silver dollars, and he would do anything to go get them. And when we have God's heart, we view things the same way. In Jesus's System. He leaves the normal. He leaves safety. He leaves the comfort of heaven to come after us in Jesus's system. In all three of these stories, he goes. At, somebody's going after something that's lost, and just one hundred sheep. You would think, ah, one lost sheep, let it go. Not in Jesus's system. Jesus celebrates finding one. I think if you ask people who've been here for a year. What their favorite thing that happens here. Most people would say baptism is by far their favorite moment. I I go back and just look at the photos of you guys getting baptized so often. That's the greatest celebration we have of the one. When we baptize someone, it's a celebration of the one. Finding the one. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that God comes looking for us when we were lost. Not that we were so good that we earned our way into the stack but that we were inherently lost and God came looking for us because we had value to him. In Jesus's system, in his worldview, I see my own brokenness and therefore I can have compassion and empathy. When we understand that we were lost and he came and found us, then we're very empathetic and compassionate to people who are lost and feel broken. Uh, in Jesus's worldview, I'm open and soft and tender and curious and listening. I can let go and trust God, and put myself out there and risk getting to know people. Uh, Miss Rochelle, you said something the other day that's really funny. I'm gonna put you on the spot, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. It was so good. She said something the other day, her first Sunday, she was talking with Natalie after church, and she was like, She said, and I love this because I have the same, I, I do, I would do the exact same thing. She was saying something about she had noticed some white person, and she goes, You know what? Actually, all y'all are white people. And uh, I loved that. Like, I loved everything about that. Like, it took fierce courage to walk through that door, see a room primarily of people with white skin and come in anyhow. But you've come in and you're already family. And those grandbabies are family. That takes courage. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus does. He puts himself out there. Uh, And I love that. On Jesus' worldview, we can extend God's relentless, inexhaustible love to one another and never give up, never stop pursuing, for such is what God has done for us. So if you'll go to that next slide, here's a question. If people, if everyone matters infinitely to God, how much should they then matter to us? If people matter infinitely to God, how much should they matter to us as individuals in a church? If a church or a Christian isn't pursuing people like Jesus does, can we really say that we have God's heart? If what we, even if we give all our money away and we serve like crazy in the community, if people don't feel like they've met Jesus when they meet us, then did we really, did did we really do anything? Now I would say No. So we're talking through, if you go to the next slide, we're talking through a series or sort of an underground below the level thing this summer about, called sneaky growth, where every letter in sneaky stands for something. Today I want to talk through the A super fast. I want to show you a system if you'll go to the next slide. The A stands for assimilation, and this is a, a process. Today's the last day we're gonna have a chance to do this before we get to September. Assimilation is just the, the idea of helping people who are outside come into us and become one of us. And so I want to share with you the system that we're going to try to implement over the next uh, month that will shout starting in September that everybody matters. And here it is. Um, Let me read you Colossians 4 5. I don't have it marked, but let me get over to it really quickly. Colossians 4 5 says this. It's it's Paul writing uh, from prison to a church in the area of Colossae, and he says, now walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And otherwise, in other words, walk wisely, walk looking around all the time when you're around people who don't know Jesus, like probably 90-something percent of our neighborhood doesn't. Walk wisely, making the best of the time. Let's seize the moment. Now, that doesn't mean like the time, like Noah started wearing a watch, oh, what time is it, you know, 1045 this means the moment this is these are moments in our community's story these are moments in people's lives and we need to seize the day seize the moment in one another's life and so here's the system that I think is going to best help us seize the moment if you yep. So it's a four, it's a four this is a four step sort of process right here one is at the everyone level our neighborhood's 18,000 people counting our neighborhood and the four neighborhoods around it That's 125,000 people with not one healthy English-speaking church. And so if we can think about the everyone level, all of those people, that uh, will involve one thing, community, people we don't know, friendships, people we do know. And we want to do three things as a church. One, we want to advertise well. Like we run ads on Instagram and Facebook. We'll boost those things and pay money for that. We run ads in the Charlestown Patriot Bridge. Every now and then we'll have somebody come because they saw an ad in the paper, uh, Another thing we want to do is we all want to serve. This isn't just um, sort of pushed out, outsourced to teams coming in from out of town. We want to serve together, serve our community well, serve our friends well. And then we want to invite people. This is the hardest one because this is very personal. At the right moment, we want to invite people to come on Sundays and uh, to a group or to an event or something like that. And some people might say like, Justin could say cuz Justin it's a year ago now that Justin became a follower of Jesus and Carson's been like truly following Jesus for less than a year. They could say, "Man, I'm new. I, I I don't know what you want me doing that. I don't know a lot of Bible. I don't I don't uh I'm new to faith." Uh that gives you an advantage that church people like me don't have. It gives you three advantages actually, three advantages. One, it gives you empathy. You can understand people's stories uh, even in a way that I can't. It gives you empathy. Second thing it does is it gives you passion. Man, if there's anybody who would understand what it feels like to be a lost coin, it's somebody who's recently been found. And then the third thing it does is it gives you contacts. It gives you contacts. Maybe you have friends who are far from Jesus but trust you and would allow you to share what God's done in your life. So this is is for everybody. We can't just outsource some of this. If this is your church, everybody's at that level that you know. Next one, if you'll go to the next one, level two. Before someone walks into church as they're coming in, a few things need to happen. Uh, Did you know that within seven minutes, someone decides whether or not they're going to come to our church again? Before they, before I even stand up to preach, let's say somebody walks up at 9.58, if we start at 10.07, we've already missed the window on whether or not they've technically decided if they're going to come back or not. So we need to be doing four things well, even before we say, all right, let's get started. And these are the things. One, we need to greet people really well. One reason we move down to this level from the cafeteria is once the weather cools down, just be much more natural to stand out here on the patio. And as people walk up, they'll see, oh, that's where they go. When people walk up, we need to make sure we greet them well. The next thing we need to do is direct people well. You know, there's restroom signs. There's the A-frames. We need to, as a church, we're going to buy more of those in the next few weeks. We need to make sure people know where to go. It's awkward walking into a place that you don't know. Part of the reason we moved from up there to down here, we found out people are 12% less likely to attend a church if they have to go off a step. That's a lot of steps. So we said, let's stop. Let's get down on one level so that people feel like they know where they're going, but we can direct people and show them where to go. The third thing we need to do is treat people. And by that, I mean food. The food doesn't have to be this amazing spread, but it needs to be consistent It needs to be good. So you might get asked, will you bake something? Will you help bring something? Natalie, every Sunday, does coffee. She gets up and makes coffee. We could buy Dunkin' or Starbucks. People get personal about their coffee, though. If you have Starbucks and people like Dunkin', you've offended half this neighborhood and vice versa. I'm right, aren't I, Miss Alicia? Um, So we want to treat people well with the food. We want people to feel like they can come in and get some food, and then sit. And then the last thing, we want to make sure people get seated well. And so we're going to, as we roll into the fall, we're going to add more seats to make sure people have a place to sit. It's awkward. If, you want, if somebody walked in right now, where would they have to go to sit down? The front, the front row. Who wants to do that? So we've got to be sensitive to that and create margin for outsiders to come in and not feel like outsiders. The third step in the process is the during and after church And we we're being kind of relaxed about this during the summer, but we need to create a couple things. One, during the service, we need it to be excellent. We've stopped doing music as often because it is a little awkward, and I would rather not have I would rather have no music than awkward music. So we want things to be uh, we want it to feel meaningful and relevant and not boring and applicable. The second thing we've got these cards. They're always in your bulletin. We want everybody to fill that out. Even if you just write your name, you can even write a sarcastic note toward me. I don't care. It's just helpful if you fill it out because we'll take a moment and say, all right, everybody fill out your card and then put it in the offering box at the end, right? And if you do it, guests are inclined to do it. All right. The next thing that we have as a gift. A couple of people are charged with, we're almost to the end of the mugs. Mount Airy, please take a coffee mug with you today so we can get rid of them. We're ready to move on to our next thing. And uh, we want to have a gift at that table. So people will grab that and say, oh, I'm glad I came. I want a coffee or some candy or a book or whatever. And uh, we'll have those new things starting in September and that'll be back there. Uh, And so that's what needs to happen during the service. When we say amen, we need to make sure very carefully three minutes, we're not doing anything except speaking to one another and to people who are visiting that day. No stacking chairs, no folding stuff up, cables. We need to speak to one another uh, immediately after church, the three-minute rule. And then the last part of the system is follow-up. And so uh, for a first-time visitor, we try to email or text that person then we send them a card. Kayla does this as well. If we have a child visit, uh, she sends, I think, a Dunkin' Donuts card, or it might be. A, is that what it is, right? And um, so they get a card with a gift card in it. And then one thing we're adding in September is an, a link to an online survey. that just says, how would you hear about us? You know, what did you notice? What stood out? It's not going to give people an opportunity to be negative, but it is going to give them an opportunity to say, all right, this is what I like, this is what I thought, and give us feedback. When somebody visits for the second time, we do another card and we'll do another survey and then we'll say, hey, we want you to take a next step. Maybe it's a group or serving with us or something like that. And then the third thing, the goal in people's life is not that people come to church. The goal that we're aiming at in this process is that people would come into relationship with God and with his people. That's the goal. That's what we're shooting for. So here is the big ask. If you'll go to the next one. I am praying for someone in our church to become what we would call the assimilation coach or the assimilation director and help oversee this. To do it, I'm going to buy you a book. Uh, It's about 180 pages. And over the next three months, I want us to read it together. Uh, not literally sit down and read it together, but I'm going to say, here's the book. Will you read this? Let's sit down for coffee. And then you're going to own that four-part system, and you're going to lead me, not me leading you, as you lead our church in getting people through the door to come back a second time, come back a third time, become part of our church, and making sure. Like, let's say Marcy decides to do it, which I would love because Marcy is um, just an amazing, like, amazing at being connected to people. Natalie and Marcy are dying laughing. Um, Marcy might say, hey, J.D., I noticed that we're becoming a little inward on Sunday. You might need to stand up and address this. Or did we get that card mailed out? Or it's been a month since so and so came. Let's make sure we write him a note. Assimilating people into the body of Christ. Now, I think, do I have one more slide or is that the last one? That's it. Jesus builds the church. Jesus said, I call you Peter And on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus grows the church, not us. We make disciples. Jesus builds the church. We make disciples. We chase the one. We shepherd the 99. We help people grow. This is going to be our process to do that. That's going to be our process. So three questions in closing. One, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you had a moment where you felt like he was coming after you? And you let him capture you and catch you. This doesn't mean we have to become religious and like weird. It just means we say in our heart, God, I've been far from you and I've been lost. And I thank you that you're coming for me. And today I receive you and I want to be forgiven and have a relationship with you. I got to talk last night with Brandon who's lived most of his life, including a lot of his adult life, not following Jesus. And just hearing the story of how God chased him down and he finally gave his life to, to Christ was really powerful. Um, maybe from the quietness of your heart, you just need to say, Jesus, I want to be part of your family. I receive you today. Will you receive me? And I promise you he will because he loves you and he's coming looking for you. Second question, does your life that everyone matters? If yes, praise God. If no, from just in the quietness of your seat, say, God, help me to love people like you do and live a life that says everyone matters and not sort of create these little bins, where we put us's and they's. And then three, is God calling one or two or three of you to help lead our church to be set up to say everybody matters? This is the most critical thing we will roll into this fall. The last, one of the letters in Sneaky Growth was new faces. This summer, we've seen 16 new people come to our church, not teams from out of town, not uh, guest speakers, new faces, 16 since mid-June. Man, I know people travel. We've even had some people who visited say, I won't be there Sunday. I've got to work or we're going to be out of town. We'll be back. We've got to have a system that incorporates those people in. Would God lead you to say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to own that Uh, and make sure it can't be Kayla. It can't be Natalie. It's got to be somebody who's not doing anything yet uh, or or wants to take on the heavy load uh, of helping us get this system set up. Let me pray for us.